Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on May 5th of 2013 under the headline, Did Oregon Miss a Chance to Catch the Zodiac Killer? As urban legends go, it's one of the oldest and the scariest. A teenage couple drives to a secluded spot late at night in parks, planning to do some of the usual canoodling. But before they do, a news bulletin interrupts the music on the radio. A psychotic killer has just escaped from the asylum, the DJ reports breathlessly. He's missing his left hand and wears a steel hook on the stump of his arm as a prosthetic. The boy wants to ignore the news and smooch some more of course, but the girl is too freaked out, so reluctantly, he starts the car and drives her home. When they get there, she makes a frightening discovery, a steel prosthetic hook hanging from the door handle on the passenger side. It's a chilling and enduring story, one that's still being told around campfires today. But it's just a story, right? Right, because in late November 1960, in the northwest hills of Portland, the man with the hook showed up, and he got him. The two young lovers never made it home. That, in any case, is the strong suspicion of Portland historian Phil Stanford, who delved into the notorious 1960 double murder of sweethearts Larry Payton and Beverly Allen to write the definitive book on the case. What Stanford found was that a particularly disturbing suspect who turned up early in the process was simply not taken seriously. And if he had been there's a good chance that a dozen murders, including some investigators think the Zodiac killings in Northern California 40 years ago, would never have happened. Here's the story, or rather a sketchy overview of the story. There is much more in Stanford's book. The story starts out just like the man with the hook story, with Larry Payton and his girlfriend, Beverly Allen, cruising downtown Portland on a Saturday night in Larry's 1949 Ford two-door sedan, and ending up parking in a secluded place in Forest Park. The next day, a policeman driving through Forest Park in search of stolen cars came across Larry's Ford. The door was open, there was blood everywhere, and Larry was slumped in the driver's seat. He'd been stabbed 23 times with a four-inch long knife. As for Beverly Allen, there was no sign of her. No sign, that is, until more than a month later when her badly mutilated body was found in a ditch within sight of passing cars on Sunset Highway outside Portland. Police detectives, already coming under considerable pressure to get things done, started immediately with a campaign that involved filtering through an unbelievable volume of low-quality leads. The Multnomah County Sheriff, who had ruined the crime scene by rummaging around in the car before the investigators got there, now tried to make up for this stunning blunder by dashing off letters to other law enforcement agencies around the country asking about similar crimes. Eager convicts and prisons nationwide started talking their heads off, whether they knew anything about the case or not, in hopes of cutting a deal. And several mentally unbalanced people started pestering the cops with tip after red hot tip. One of those mentally unbalanced people actually ended up getting taken seriously. 
unfortunately for several suspects who, although convicted of the murders, were almost universally considered to be innocent. And several mentally unbalanced people started pestering the cops with tip after red-hot tip. One such mentally unbalanced person ended up getting taken seriously, which was very unfortunate for the suspects she fingered, who ended up getting convicted of the murders. Almost everyone now believes they were innocent. One of the early leads the cops stumbled across, though, was a prison-hardened tough guy with the oddly memorable name of Edward W. Edwards. Edwards had been snooping around the crime scene the day after Peyton's body was discovered, and ten days later, he was caught setting off fire alarms as a prank. He had a minor, unexplained bullet wound in his upper arm. Police revoked his parole, he was on parole at the time, tossed him in the county lockup, and made plans to interrogate him first thing Monday. Meanwhile, the cops were looking into a couple of unruly teenage drinking parties that had been held near the crime scene that night. These parties were packed with troubled teens and young adults, male and female, some of whom knew and disliked Larry Payton. Many of them had criminal records for minor robberies and burglaries. There were weapons, a couple knives, an automatic pistol found in a garbage can. There were stories of fistfights. There were plenty of possible motives. By the time Edwards was arrested, the cops were already working on several promising theories, and he was very much a back-burner kind of suspect. So when he escaped from the jail over the weekend and disappeared, they didn't worry too much about it. After all, what were the chances some fool caught prank-pulling fire alarms was a serial killer anyway? They certainly didn't ask themselves why a seasoned crook who knew very well how the system worked would want to avoid questioning badly enough to break out of jail and go fully on the lam when the worst charge he was facing was a prank misdemeanor. Too bad. If they'd asked themselves that question, maybe they would have chased him. Edwards moved east and eventually was caught after an especially lucrative bank robbery that landed him on the FBI's top ten most wanted list for a short time. Edwards liked to claim he had an IQ in the high 130s, but apparently that wasn't brainy enough to figure out that paying cash for a new Cadillac and a truckload of new things for his slummy apartment might attract some attention. When they caught him, they sent a hair sample back to Portland, and after comparison with a hair found on Beverly Allen turned out not to be a match, he was eliminated as a suspect. Eventually, with the help of an astonishingly sketchy collection of witnesses, the authorities charged three of the partygoers with two counts of murder. One was acquitted, the other two were convicted. They were sentenced to life plus 25. Within just a few years, both were paroled. Nobody believed they'd done it. Not anymore. But if not them, who? The answer to that question was going to have to wait a few years, and a few more people were going to have to die. Early in 2009... The Wisconsin State Police dusted off a cold case file from 1980. Someone, it seemed, had followed two young lovers as they walked home from a wedding reception, pounced on them, stabbed the man to death, raped and strangled his fiancée. By the time their bodies were found by hunters six months later, they were badly decomposed, but not badly enough for the killer's DNA to be gone from the scene. Samples had been preserved in anticipation of a day when technology would advance enough to test them, and that day had come, and the cops ran the test, and hey, jackpot, it came back with a match to, guess who, Edward W. Edwards. In July of 2009, the Wisconsin State Police arrested Edward W. Edwards, who by then had aged into a 76-year-old blob of a man in a wheelchair on oxygen, and charged him with two counts of murder. With Edwards' name in the news, authorities in other places started contacting Wisconsin, 
It seems he'd been at the scene of a number of other crimes that looked a lot like the Peyton Allen murders. And in some of those crimes, he'd even been a suspect. Edwards was in Great Falls, Montana in 1956 when a young couple was murdered. The 19-year-old man was found lying beside his car, hands tied, shot in the back of the head. His girlfriend was found six miles away, also shot through the head. Then there was the death of two high school kids in Akron, Ohio, who'd gone on a date in 1979 and never come back. They weren't found until six years later. They'd been shot and stabbed. Edwards was mentioned as a, quote, person of interest. And Edwards, in 2010, confessed that he was the guy who murdered two young lovers in Doylestown, Ohio, in 1977. Again, execution style with a shotgun blast to the back of the neck. And to top off the list, he was in the San Francisco Bay Area during the Zodiac Killer's reign of terror. The identity of the Zodiac Killer has never been established, and the killings stopped as suddenly as they'd started right around the time Edwards moved away. All of this, added to his involvement at the scene of the Peyton Allen killings, puts him at the scene of at least five double murders involving young lovers over a 25-year stretch. What are the odds? The man with the hook died on April 7, 2011, just a few weeks into a life sentence in Wisconsin. He never did say whether he was the man who killed Larry Peyton and Beverly Allen, and Multnomah County decided not to reopen the investigation after he was caught. So we'll probably never really know. But at the same time, we probably really do. Key sources in this story include works by Phil Stanford, as well as the websites manwiththehook.com and murderpedia.org. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.